This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Alex Andreo and here with me this Monday morning in the wet, soupy gloom is Time columnist Yasmin Sirhan. Morning, Yasmin. Morning, Alex. Yasmin, let's begin with a little bit of UK politics. The Sunday Times yesterday had a scoop that the government is exploring a Swiss-style bespoke EU deal with fuller access to the single market, closer alignment and freer, although not free movement. And this seems to have excited Tory backbenchers quite a lot. Mm. Is there anything to it? Well, if you ask the government, they say there's nothing to it at all. They've categorically denied that they're seeking a Swiss-style relationship with the EU, I think especially after the sort of Brexiteers within the Conservative Party kicked off on Twitter. And of course, you had the sort of normal characters. I saw Nigel Farage call Rishi Sunak a globalist, which was an interesting... um, Yeah, an interesting, yeah, sort of critique there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it effectively, it suggested to me at least that if if there is any merit to the story, and, and I believe the FT has, has and the Sunday Times, they basically confirmed that their reporting was quite strong on this. It seemed to suggest, at least to me, that if it is true that the government is seeking this kind of deal, that there is perhaps some buyer's remorse when it comes to Brexit and, and its economic mm. impact, I think, which we are starting to feel, or not starting to feel, have already been feeling of late. But but I think given especially the, the recession that's underway, um, the autumn statement that we heard last week, um, yeah. I think there has been a lot of focus as to what's caused all this. And, and I think the, the sort of elephant in the room <laughs> is, yeah. is, the, is the B word. The, the FT has also confirmed the story. It says it has spoken to officials who say the Swiss comparison over closer relations has been made in senior government circles. That's the quote. And the mail this morning, Monday, splashes a warning, don't betray us on Brexit. So the press is certainly taking it seriously. Commentators are pointing out that this is very similar to May's Chequers deal, which was roundly rejected by the Conservatives even at a time when there were many more Remainers among them who have Mm. now been purged. But has there been a shift in mood more generally? It's it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, especially off the back of... Uh, of obviously kind of having just seen tweets of of Brexiteers criticizing it. I mean, it's it's certainly hard to imagine the the Tories sort of wanting to go back in time and relitigating this issue again. Are are tweets from Brexiteers, though, um, sort of uh, uh, kicking against this story make it less likely? Or do they confirm that they think this is a serious possibility. Do you see what I mean? They could be taken either way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true for sure. I mean, it's 
it's just it kind of hard to it sort of baffles the mind that that you know Downing Street obviously Rishi Sunak has just come in and wants to maintain some semblance of unity going back to Brexit and sort of relitigating even though of course you know you you have things like the Northern Irish Protocols it's not like Brexit has been done and dusted completely but mm. to, to kind of go back and relitigate this issue and to dust up Theresa May's old checkers deal just feels like kind of the opposite way of, of getting any sort of unity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know. I'd be keen to see sort of, you know, how many MPs within the Conservative Party feel that perhaps it's it's time to look to something a bit closer. I mean, I'd also really keen to hear comment from the EU on this because, you know, the, the kind of sort of bespoke relationship that Switzerland has with the European Union. I mean, as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, they 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 pay a lot into the EU budget. They allow freedom yeah. of movement. Th- these are all things that I think would probably um, cause a bit of ire within the conservative benches. Yeah, I guess it's interesting that it comes sort of after a, a few days where prominent people, including Jeremy Hunt and the governor of the Bank of England, have openly acknowledged that Brexit has done economic damage. Mm. And there was a YouGov poll showing the highest gap now between people who believe Brexit was a mistake and people who still believe it was the right thing to do. It's now 56% to 32%, which is the biggest sort of gap that we've seen in this kind of tracker poll. My own feeling is that I guess this has been discussed behind closed doors. That doesn't make it a viable plan politically, But I guess at a time when conservatives are looking for low-hanging economic fruit because the the country's economy is in so much trouble, it doesn't surprise me that they would look at a slightly closer relationship, slightly freer access to the Mm. EU because we know that that would boost you know, GDP and trade and productivity pretty instantly because we've seen the effect it had when you sort of put up those barriers. So it stands to reason that removing some of those (laughs) barriers via whatever mechanism would give us an instant little boost. But who knows? Trying to second-guess the Conservative Party's (laughs) action, (laughs) um, that way lies madness, I think. Now, the debate on last week's budget this week moves into the uh, Commons Chamber and moves very much from the general to the specific. You wrote that Britain seems to be embracing austerity 2.0, but is this the public or just conservative politicians? And if there's a gap between the the two, how will that play out? I think it's definitely politicians. Um, You know, I wasn't here in 2010, but it was my understanding just from reading coverage of that time and and, and listening to to those who were involved in it reflect on that period that, especially after the, the financial crisis, I think there was, correct me if I'm wrong, an acceptance among the, the British population that perhaps some uh, belt tightening had to be done. It doesn't feel like that's the case this time around. I, I think people are obviously quite fearful of the implications of significant spending cuts and obviously the implications for tax rises, especially among households who are already feeling the pinch especially when it comes to things like energy bills. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely room for a clash when it comes to 
sort of public perceptions of of what needs to be done and the role that the government has to play to mm. to balance Britain's budget, so to speak, and what and what the government thinks that they have to do, um, particularly when it comes to reassuring international markets. I think, you know, you have to feel for the British people. Um, and of course, both of us living here, the amount of uncertainty and political upheaval over the past year, then to be followed by, of course, these warnings of, you know, income tax thresholds being frozen, meaning that we're very likely going to pay significantly more tax. And also bracing for the fact that come April, um, uh, barring those who who the, the poorest households will probably need the support the most and those on benefits, we're probably also going to see our energy prices go up to the market price. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely room for some conflict there. I've been interested. I mean, I think Hunt and Sunak will be overall delighted with the reaction, right? Because mm-hmm. it could have gone a lot worse. But it seems to me to be slowly unraveling. There are budgets that kind of fall apart the day after, and there are budgets that slowly unravel. And this one seems to, to me to be the latter. There are a lot of noises off from low-tax Tories. I think councils having to increase their poll tax has not gone down particularly well. It seems to me that Telegraph's Dominic Penner is reporting that a, a number of Tory backbenchers, their local associations are seething with anger and disbelief, one tells him, because this seems a rather, I guess, unconservative budget. And many people commented on that, I think, when it was announced. It seemed mm. quite a new laborish budget. So we will see how that goes down with grassroots and MPs when the actual debate uh, happens this week. I, mm. I will be looking very closely to what interventions which backbenchers make. It will be interesting to see. It also has moved slightly the debate onto labor being pressed to say how they would do it. They're, of course, saying we're not going to write, you know, our manifesto two years early. Mm-hmm. But they have, they have announced a plan to reform or probably abolish the House of Lords, which was quite a surprise to me. What do you think of that? Is, there, is it a smart move politically? Yeah, I was a bit surprised about it as well, just because, you know, it's not something that in in the time that I've lived here, you know, I've obviously heard murmurs about, you know, whether the the House of Lords was was really, you know, kind of a good sort of democratic thing to continue to have this idea of politicians appointing people to to be, you know, peers for for life. But yeah, I mean, I was a little surprised to see it. But I mean, you know, the the, the framing that Starmer used was interesting. Um, I, I believe the story was first reported by The Observer. And when it did, they said that, you know, the way Starmer explained the move is that he wanted to restore trust in politics and, and to replace the House of Lords with this newly elected chamber. Um, I, I think the specifics of what that would look like, I think we're still waiting to see, um, especially in terms of how it kind of relates to the House of Commons. I kind of would be curious to see how, yeah, how, how such a new chamber, I mean, in terms of whether they would sort of have the same role that the House of Lords does now in terms of legislation and, and how it would be different. But um, I think restoring trust is key because obviously, you know, that was a theme that we heard with, within Rishi Sunak's speech yeah. um, outside Downing Street. Um, and, and I think that's because that's been the biggest issue of the last couple of years, right? It's been this yeah, yeah. notion that, you know, the British people really don't trust um, and, and mm. haven't been given much reason to trust their politicians, to stick by their word, to govern in a way that, that is seen as kind of, you know, abiding by the rules and respectable yeah. and abiding by traditions 
convictions and values. And so I, I think that that is a very interesting way for for him to to go about framing it, because I think that's obviously that's going to be the tenor of the debate. I think even a couple of years from now, when there is an election, the question will be, did Rishi Sunak actually restore trust in politics? And if you didn't, Labour can be like, look, you haven't been able to trust your politicians for a while. You should trust us. Finally, there's a developing story about a migrant who was being held at Manston, many say unlawfully, who died over the weekend. Mm. Do we know anything ex- except sketchy details about this? We're getting more details emerging. Of course, it's it's a terribly sad story. I believe it was the Sunday Times that reported, reportedly the man died of organ failure after being kept in, in Manston with this processing center in Kent for a week. We we know, of course, from, from the previous reporting that's been done on this, Manston, I think, has become pretty famous uh, because it, after it was revealed recently that I think some 4,000 migrants were being held there, despite the fact that it only had a capacity, I believe, for about 1,000 to 1,600 people. Um, Suela Braverman, of course, came under a lot of criticism for that. Yeah, and no facilities, and no facilities right. for them to stay more than 24 hours, right? There, there aren't even beds there. Right. And in pretty, I think one could, could argue inhumane conditions. I think that, you know, there were reports of, of, of diseases spreading there. I mean, I, it wouldn't be a sort of, it doesn't sound like it would be the sort of place where, you know, if, if you're meant to only be keeping people there for 24 hours, it certainly isn't the sort of place that would be comfortable for someone staying a week, mm. no less if, if they're suffering from a, a serious medical condition as as it, as it, we can perhaps imagine that this gentleman was. We don't know a lot about him except for the fact that he reportedly came from the Middle East and it, it traveled to the UK um, as part of a small boat crossing. But yeah, I mean, I think this just once again highlights the the crisis that's happening there um, at Manston and, and sort of, I think, casts a critical light on how the UK is dealing with the migrants that are coming onto their shores. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Moving to the other side of the Atlantic, it is wretched to start once again with a homophobic attack, this time in Colorado. Um, what's the summary of the story, Yasmin? Yeah, it was terrible news to see over the weekend. Um, there was unfortunately another mass shooting in the United States, this time at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs that unfortunately resulted in the deaths of five people. And it's been reported that at least 25 others were injured. In this case, the gunman, it was a gunman who, who's been identified, a 22-year-old man who, who has been detained. He was actually subdued by two of the club's patrons. They're still trying to determine the motive, though I think that everything we know about the attack, of course, thus far suggests that it has all the appearances of a hate crime. I mean, you know, I think for a lot of Americans and even international observers, this incident is painfully reminiscent of the 2016 massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. That, of course, resulted in 49 people being killed and and scores of others wounded. 
of course, you know, gun laws have not changed in the United States, unfortunately. Um, hate crimes like these continue to, um, yeah, just, you know, it's it was kind of just a reminder, at least for me when I saw the news, that nothing really has fundamentally changed, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And especially now post-midterms. I mean, you know, the Biden administration, even when the Democrats did have control of, of both chambers of Congress was not able to, I mean, they, they did pass some some legislation with regard to, to, to guns. I don't want to say they haven't been able to do anything. However, at the end of the day, um, you know, th- these are attacks that, that still happen rather frequently and unfortunately, unsurprisingly in the United States. And, and that mm. I would imagine, especially given the results of the midterms is unlikely to change anytime soon. Post midterms, which we we're talking about, a narrow House majority has finally been confirmed for the Republican Party. Um, it was a, a red trickle rather than a, mm. a red wave. How difficult can it still make things for the Biden administration, the, the a GOP having a narrow House majority? I mean, it undoubtedly makes things more difficult in that the Democrats are going to have more of a challenging time passing legislation than they would have when they held uh, both houses of, of Congress. And even at the best of times, as we recall, they still had some some issues even when they did control both houses. But you know what? The, the results of, of the midterms overall, after finally getting confirmation that the Democrats had maintained control of the Senate, lost by a minor, kind of minor um, majority, the House, I thought was kind of interesting because it, the, it felt like Democrats had won the narrative in that the Republicans had underperformed so badly that they were almost kind yeah. of able to claim a win whilst also losing one of the houses of Congress. So, I mean, I think for Democrats, this probably represented the least worst outcome for them. Um, mm. You know, they can point to the GOP's lackluster performance as a kind of victory. Um, I think the big question, of course, is what is the Republican Party going to do with their new albeit wafer thin power, you know, can they, will they continue to propagate Trump stop the steal narrative, you know, that didn't perform uh, particularly well in the midterms, or, you know, especially if, if they're going to face, you know, a public backlash, or, you know, it, it kind of remains to be seen. I think the murmurs that we're getting from, from particularly, I think that the, the more far right sort of corners of that party is that they really just want to go after Joe Biden and and you know whether that's investigating him his family even potentially trying to impeach him um you know it seems like they're really kind of focusing on him there's also a sort of fascinating implication uh, i read an interesting piece in your magazine time about the ukraine consensus frame on the Republican side, and you wrote that this is a more general danger for the West. What what should we do to strengthen resolve on supporting Ukraine? Or is it right to question her choice at this point? Yeah, I mean, that was the question I had going into reporting that piece. You know, I really wanted to understand just how big of a concern war fatigue is. You know, this notion that, especially with the difficult economic winter said um, looming, that, you know, people facing higher prices, um, certainly higher energy bills, that perhaps their support for things like sanctions and, and continued aid packages to Ukraine might start to diminish. What I found was that surprise, I mean, what what is the polls in terms of support for Ukraine across the West, both in the US, but also in the UK and France and Germany, is that support is remarkably stable for Ukraine. And that's quite good to see. However, it, the polls also do bear out that support when faced with higher energy prices or higher prices at home, support does 
tend to trickle down a bit. And we see this particularly in the US. I mean, so I, I had cited some polling in, in which case um, I think support for sanctions on Russian energy among Republicans drops to 35% compared to, you know, Democrats and independents, 52% and 45% respectively. That's if, you know, mm. they, they indeed support for sanctions if they face higher prices. I put the question of how to strengthen resolve to, to lawmakers um, in all the, the countries I was focusing on. And and look, they, they said two things, which, which I thought w- was interesting. Um, this was kind of repeated across the conversations that I had. The first is that the onus is really on Western governments to continue to articulate why support, why they're yes. supporting Ukraine and the importance of doing that. For democracy- yes, leadership is key, isn't it? Exactly. Um, But the other thing that they said is is that, and I think this kind of goes to your second question of, is it right to question our choices? You know, I I spoke to someone in the US who said, no, you've got to treat these questions as legitimate. You know, people are right to sort of question, Mm. you know, the the economic situation in their countries, but that there are arguments and, and clear cases to be made for why it is important. That, that that we continue to support Ukraine, even mm. if we do face these challenges. And off the back of that, it's also incredibly important that governments do everything they can to shield their populations from the worst effects of these economic repercussions. Like, for example, capping energy bills or, or subsidizing them so that we're not, they don't, their publics don't experience the highest prices. Um, these yeah. are, of course, things that we've seen done here in, in France and Germany. Similar measures are, are coming in January. Um, but I think those are the two things that lawmakers are going to be have to do repeatedly, continuously articulate why, but, but also provide the support so that their populations don't feel the worst effects. Meanwhile, after announcing he will run for president, he who shall not be named has also been, been allowed back on Twitter. Um, is this significant? Is the e- Elon Musk, Donald <laughs> Trump axis of evil a thing? <laughs> I mean, it feels worth noting just at the top that the Elon Musk ran a poll to determine, because of course, this is how we make decisions at Twitter now. He ran a Twitter poll um, to determine whether Trump should be reinstated. And that poll went to Trump's favor 52 to 48% because we are stuck uh, with that cursed. Re- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I blame Britain for this. Um, but yeah, I, mean, look, I wasn't terribly shocked. I mean, we knew Musk's views on this anyway. And and the fact that Trump has, has announced his third presidential run, I think, is would probably had made the case at least in Musk's mind that there was you know there was a place for Trump Trump on Twitter I'm kind of keen to see I think Trump had actually made public remarks saying that he didn't see any reason to return to Twitter because of, of course he has his own social network truth social mm. and and maybe it would be seen as kind of cheating on his pet project if he if he goes back to um Twitter but I th- I think without question of course Twitter is the bigger platform and so you know I, I went to check out Trump's account. You can see it now. It is indeed reinstated. His last tweet is from January eighth, twenty twenty one. So he hasn't tweeted yet. Which is which is interesting in itself. It was just after the Capitol invasion. Okay, now very quickly, Qatar World Cup. It got underway yesterday on Sunday. Although England and Wales don't play until later today. What were your first impressions? Well, I didn't watch the opening ceremonies, and neither did the BBC. It would appear they actually did. They chose not to, um, not to broadcast it, choosing instead to kind of, I think, focus on more on the criticisms. I think we've been hearing a lot about Qatar in the recent years and months. 
Look, I, I think, you know, I've been talking to friends about this over the weekend because I'm obviously very excited to watch the games and that, you know, of course, England is playing. My home country has has made it, <laughs> has returned to the World Cup once again. So I'm excited to watch them play each other on Friday. But, you know, this feels like a weird World Cup. It's happening at a weird time of year. And then you have mm. the the background, of course, of, of all the sort of controversial things about the host country um, from, of course, the treatment of migrant workers to um, their, their, their laws against um, LGBTQ people. Um, it just feels like, it kind of feels like anything Qatar was hoping to gain, any sort of soft power was hoping to gain from hosting these games. It kind of feels, I know that there's time, you know, these games have only just started, but it really doesn't feel like this has sort of panned out for them perhaps in the way that they had hoped. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, certainly among the people I've been speaking to, I don't think anyone's particularly excited but of course, you know, people are going to want to support their teams. I, I did see that Joe Lysa, he he had announced that he was going to, he he basically called on David Beckham not to be a World Cup ambassador to basically cancel the, the multi-million pound deal that he had done with Qatar to promote the World Cup. Um, he gave him a deadline of yesterday and he didn't do it. So he ended up shredding 10,000 pounds. Maybe. I mean, we have no way of knowing that that that, that was real money, right? I was going to say, I was looking at the colors because I was like, that looks like it was green. So I was like, that looks like American. I, I did have this question of whether yeah, it's real. I, I have to say, it looked a little bit like newspaper, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very surprised. I mean, that was a lot. My initial thought was, why don't you just donate it to charity or something? But it turns yeah. out, I mean, I think the whole appeal was if Beckham did back down, he would donate it to charity. But yeah, so I mean, yeah, it just, it feels like, I don't know about you, Alex, it just feels like a bit of a weird World Cup to me. Yeah, it, no, it, it it definitely was. Um, and I think the the opening ceremony not being shown made it even weirder. Although I have to say, you know, after people like Pierce Morgan criticised in highly exaggerated terms the BBC not showing the opening ceremony. Someone explained that the time ha was changed very recently to an earlier time. Um, so, oh. and the BBC was showing it on iPlayer, and you could see it on the red button. They just couldn't change their um, schedule. Uh, to accommodate it, or maybe they didn't want to schedule, <laughs> change the schedule to accommodate it. But it, it, there has, and I have confirmed this, there has been a recent change of time to the opening ceremony. So m maybe there are other reasons that we're not, we're not aware of. Uh, I mean, I look forward to some of the football. I'm not looking forward to the stuff around the football because I think we just have to stop we have to stop allowing repressive regimes to mm. sports wash their behavior. We just have to stop it. Mm. Um, it's become such a popular thing to allow these repressive regimes to put on a big show so that everyone can see you know, how lovely really they are while people die building the stadia and, and you know, homosexuals are imprisoned and, and women are oppressed. It's just mm. unsavory in my view. But Absolutely, yeah. There it is. COP27 finished a couple of days ago. There was, for the first time, a framework of a deal on damages. Yeah, so 
Yeah, it was. It seemed like pretty significant for a COP that I think people didn't have a lot of, you know, certainly the climate activists I spoke to weren't particularly excited or hopeful about this COP. But for the first time in 30 years of, of these climate talks, developed countries agreed to provide basically financial support to help rescue and rebuild poorer countries that are stricken by climate-related disasters. I believe it's being known as the Loss and Damage Fund. So, yeah, I think a pretty significant outcome from from th- this COP. Mm. Of course, I, I think there was a lot of, you know, to kind of match the optimism of that, there was obviously a lot of negativity around the fact that I think little else was probably done in, in terms of capping emissions, yeah. um, really to keep 1.5 degrees alive. I think Alok Sharma in particular was particularly scathing about the, the lack of progress there. Um, you know, I think at Glasgow, he, he said that the pulse of 1.5 degrees was weak. And and after this, he said, unfortunately, it remains on life support. Mm. So yeah, <laughs> worrying times for the climate, but we have agreed a way to at least mitigate or, or try to deal with its effects. Okay, perfect. The, the only other things I would mention to keep an eye on, the Shemaima Begum immigration appeal is this week. Remember, she had her British citizenship withdrawn, many believe, against the rules since she was born and grew up here and has never really embraced uh, any other citizenship. Her lawyers will argue that she doesn't pose a security risk, that she was a victim of grooming. The Telegraph thinks that her winning could open the floodgates to returning jihadists. That's a quote. Seems a little exaggerated. It's sure to be contentious and worth keeping an eye on. Also, Rishi Sunak is talking to the CBI today, Monday. Given the story about a renegotiated deal with the EU, I think all eyes will be on that this afternoon. Also, a story brewing for early next week, but with impact this week, is uh, there's a dyslexia debate in the Commons on the 2nd of December, moved by Matt Hancock, who is meant to be in the jungle to champion dyslexia. Will he be evicted in time to come back for his own moved debate? Let's see. Yasmin, thanks for getting up early to join me today. Thanks for having me. That was Start Your Week out every Monday morning from the bunker. We love starting your week, and it's your support that helps us do that. You can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month, and you'll get many episodes early, all of them ad-free, bonus merchandise, and a grateful shout out. And on that note, here is Yasmin with today's roll call of gratitude. Hello, and thanks from me to Ed Clues, Sarah Green, Emma, Sarah Cotillon, and David Bunce. This is all from us. We'll see you tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Yasmin Sohan and was produced by Kasia Tomashevich and Jacob Jarvis. Audio production was by me, Jay Bailey, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The group editor is Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>